Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 101. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, today's guest is Brother Yao. He'll be here in about 15 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do because you're here today, even though we were supposed to be on the air yesterday. So uh, if you would, please show your love by uh, clicking that like button and making sure you're subscribed and all that good stuff. Uh, Sorry about yesterday's uh, blackout situation. We were, um, the power just kept going on and off all day. It was the most frustrating thing. I kept thinking that the show would be fine, and then... um, the power would go out, and then it'd come back on, and I'd think, oh, okay, it's going to be okay, and then it would come back on. It went out again like 15 minutes before the show, um, came on about one minute after I announced that it was going to be postponed, and then went off again a half an hour later for the, most of the night. So it came back on around, I think, 11 p.m. or something. So, uh, But we're back today. Uh, we live in a, in a small town with some aging infrastructure, and the power goes out pretty often, um, but that's just the way of the world these days. And I'm glad we could be here, though, to share uh, poetry by Brother Yao and uh, your open line poems later. Um, but, but first, before we start uh, with all that, I'm going to call up uh, Sunday's poet, uh, Jay Brecker, and uh, see if we can get him on the line to talk about his uh, Rumsfeld poem. Hello. Hey, Jay, how you doing? It's Tim with Rattle. You are live on the air. Oh, hi, Tim. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm okay. I'm okay. It's cool where I am, but um, probably not where you are. No, it's very hot. I'm going to be sweating bullets in the studio today because we have no air conditioning in here. And um, I think it's like 93 degrees out, which for up at 6,000 feet is pretty hot. Um, yeah. So so your poem that we published though yesterday was Rumsfeld. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what inspired the poem and, and why you were sort of compelled to write it? Um. I had been thinking actually about the whole idea of, of, of Rumsfeld dying and just the idea of his going to the, you know, cliche great unknown. And then I was with a, um, a, a group of writers and we were kind of, we were doing a uh, kind of a little generative thing based on the idea of knowns came up mm-hmm. and in about Seven minutes or so, most of this poem was written in that time, thinking, just kind of channeling the idea of of Rumsfeld. Yeah, it feels like one of those poems that sort of, you know, wrote itself almost. It was like drawn out. I, I can imagine it being written really quickly because it feels like it was sort of spontaneously pulled out of the ether or something. It, it really was. I mean, it, it had been sitting in my head in some way, but I never knew that it would turn into, well, I never knew that it would actually make the page in any way, shape or form. So it was really fortuitous. And then um, a friend of mine who was there when the poem was, you know, online with me when the poem was written said, you know, um, there's a deadline for uh, Poets Respond and sent me the link and chided me to send the poem in, which I'm certainly happy to have done and felt, oh, sure, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and so and, and so I have uh, Cynthia Santana to thank for um, a wonderful poet, by the way, and pushing me uh, to do this. And I'm, I'm so happy you liked it. 
Yeah, well, I'm so glad you did. It was one of those things. I mean, the the Rumsfeld that quote. I mean, it's it's such a strange thing because he did so much more, and not you know, I don't like to be political about my personal opinions, but you know, I have my opinions about him, and uh, to be remembered for that one quote. Which is actually a very useful concept to understand. You know, you kind of have a, a Venn diagram of what we know and, and, and what we know that we know and, and, you know, and so on. And people don't really think of it like that. Usually, I, I find myself during the pandemic using that to talk about vaccines a lot, you know, because there are things sure. that we you know, know were risks and they turn out not to be. And then there, there are always unknown unknowns that might, might happen, too. Um, so it's a, it's a useful thing to think of for a person who, um, you know, a lot of people think of as, as a war criminal, frankly. Um, so I don't know. It's interesting yeah. to put this poem to, you know, g- give poetry to this, uh, this phrase that he was so famous for. And also, um, you know, the, the phrase itself, I think comes from Keats, right? Oh, known unknown from whom my being sips. Isn't that, uh, the, it, I don't know if he got it from there in, in, in purpose yeah. or if it just sort of filtered from there, but I think Keats is the first person to do it. So it's starts it, with a poem and ends been. with a poem, right? Right. I mean, and I, I threw one of, I threw one in there that is not part of the quote. I mean, I threw in the unknown knowns, yeah, mm-hmm. which, which I felt are the things that we refuse to know, that we know they're there, we're just for whatever reason, um, lazy or anxious or afraid, or, um, or in, in Rumsfeld's case, too brazen to care in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so. Yeah, so there's there's a part of that. I kind of corrupted the quote, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a poetic license. Well, why don't you go ahead and read uh, Rumsfeld for us? Rumsfeld. No one seems to care what he knows now that he has entered the great unknown. He of the known knowns, the known unknowns, the unknown knowns and the unknown unknowns. And I'm alone, afraid, unknowing, if anyone else knows or cares to know what I know or think I know of what happens when you find you know something you didn't know before, realize now that you know you still have no idea what you don't know now that an unknown is known. Did he know this, or was it foggy in that moment on Tuesday when he woke from an unremembered dream with a hunch there was something out there he should know about the great unknown? Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. I'm saying that was Jay Becker with uh, Rumsfeld Brecker. after Brecker after Rumsfeld yeah. uh, uh, passing away a couple weeks ago. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Jay. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Hope you send something again soon. I sure will. Thanks, Tim. Really nice. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. Bye. Bye. Yes, that was Jay Brecker with Rumsfeld. Um, And now let's see. We have uh, a couple minutes. I want to look back in time. Now, as we all boil (laughs) here, at least on the West Coast, um, I thought I'd go back three years. This is uh, Heat from Ruth Bavetta, another West Coast poet. So apparently we were having Heat and Fire... Um, three years ago, uh, three years ago this day. So, uh, this was Ruth Bavetta's Poets Respond poem, Heat. And we'll play this and then we'll go to, uh, Brother Yao. Heat. And the sun said, let there be fire. And there was fire. And the fire said, 
let there be wind. And the wind was throbbing, and the beasts of the flames pulled taut over the hills, said naught to the chaparral, and nil to the coyote. And the coyote ran, and the rabbits ran, and the deer and the rattlesnake and the quail ran, and the wind sprang from its kill, and tongue licked the eaves and the rafters and the roof, and the smoke was air, and the air was smoke. The air was our bodies. It was the shadows against the sky. Once again, that was Ruth Bavetta from uh, 2018. Um, and her note is here, fire season has started with a bang this week. And uh, the article here, um, I wonder if we can access it, yeah. Fires across California force evacuations, claim homes, and at least one life. And uh, there's a, a fire from, uh, what is that, Klamathon fire, burning this week in Hornbrook, California, three years ago today. Um, let's see, we have a couple minutes. Let me do another another Poets Respond poem from the past. Um you know, right now, as we're going on, uh, the baseball, Major League Baseball Home Run Derby is going on. I'm sure everybody is uh, really sad to miss it. I know I am. Um, but here's a poem by Jennifer Rain Hancock. And this is uh, The Last Days of Baseball. She's writing, speaking of climate change again, a um, poems about the effect that climate change will have on baseball. And uh, she says, I'm writing a series of poems about how baseball will be affected by climate change. Captain Earthman, Brent Doden, was a vendor at Coors Field, as well as Mile High, Red Rocks, and spring training games in Arizona. His death hit me hard, as he always reminded me of my dad, who died four years ago. They were both fascinated with space and consummate performers. Dad would have made a great beer vendor. Captain Earthman lives, leaves us to watch the game change as the earth changes, and we are at a loss, a lack of political will to do anything about it. I don't know if he was an environmentalist. Likely not. He was an entertainer first and foremost. But in the week of his death, both Mayor Hancock of Denver, no relation, and Governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper, both pledged to uphold the Paris Accords in defiance of President Trump's position, all of those things coming together as we deal with one of the worst fire seasons in the West in years that led to this poem. This was July 13th, 2017, so a year before Ruth Bavetta's uh, heat poem. This is uh, Jennifer Rain Hancock with uh, In the Last Days of Baseball. The Last Days of Baseball In Memoriam, Brent Doden, July 10th, 2017 Captain Earthman is dead At the end of the Anthropocene As we await Thor Ragnarok As an iceberg the size of Delaware Falls from Antarctica like a doomed hero Our angels have also fallen Bowie would have asked whose shirt he wore these last days, and aren't all days these days, last days, we who need hope texted him, 246, row 12, beers please. And he came, from as far away as first base, as far away as earth man, where baseball used to be green. He came with our beers and our hope, that the fires in Arizona won't touch talking stick. And beer and hope are all we have now, these last days of baseball, as Arizona burns and California, Utah, and Colorado burn and keep burning through irrigated and stadium-lit fields. Brent Doden told the Denver Post he'd like to die abducted by aliens. 
He knew the thin, clear air above Red Rocks could jog the steps with twenty beers when he was young. So he'd know. He'd say, take me home, guys. I've spent enough time here and they haven't learned anything. Peace, love, all that hippie shit on my harness pins, the rainbow flags in my Rockies cap. And we, who need hope more than beer, will text numbers his daughter will read in Hawaii. 119, row 3, 211, row 9. Coordinates in baseball as important as the 643 double play. They mean us, we, here, in the safety of Coors Field, while the world burns and Bowie's voice on vinyl floats through the open windows in Capitol Hill, where the beats used to beat Nick. Captain Earthman has boarded the mothership, and we who need anything and everything, but will settle for beer, are waiting for him through the last days of baseball, which are the last days of cool spring training games and rain-drenched post-seasons, the last days of our time here on Earth. And once again, that was Jennifer Rain Hancock with The Last Days of Baseball. Um, and we're going to go now to Brother Yao. So hang on just a minute. I'm going to put up some uh, the screen here and uh, we'll go to Brother Yao in just a minute. We'll be back after, uh, after we connect. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Uh, Brother Yao is here on the line. Um, it's the second time on the podcast. He was on way back in episode number 12, and he's one of my favorite poets. I just love his work. So he's the first time we've had a repeat guest because he has a new book now. Um, so Brother Yao is the former founder and co-owner of one of the nation's largest African-American bookstores from 1993 to 2008, and currently works as an assistant professor at Bowie State University in the Department of Language, Literature, and Cultural Studies. Uh, he is currently working on a book of essays called The Wuhan Soundtrack, based on his experience living in Wuhan, China. Um, his most recent book is One Shoe Marching Toward Heaven, and then his book before that is Inheritance, which we talked about. We'll be reading from that a little bit, too. And here he is, uh, Brother Yao. Hey, Brother Yao, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm good, man. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. It's great to have you back on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank, thank, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, I, I, enjoyed the, I enjoyed listening to the poems, uh... That, that that you just had, you know, I really like that the second one, you know, that it, that simple language is, you know, really what uh. Yeah, what gets I, me I was thinking is uh, that was a Ruth Bavetta's poem, and I was thinking it was similar to your style, and it felt a lot like a prayer, you know, it felt like like spiritual yeah, yeah, in the way yeah. that in the incantation kind of aspect, which maybe we'll talk about a little later. Uh, do you want to start us out with a poem and, and get the ball rolling? Yeah, that's fine. Uh, yeah, I, I sent you a list. I almost never do that, uh, so I may change up some. But uh, the first one that I sent you was Witchcraft from Inheritance, and it's on page 63. Gotcha. Okay, and uh, Witchcraft, uh, Study the Masters, Lucille Clifton. When they speak of craft, I wonder if I am good enough, if I am a Christian, if God knows the disaster, tell me about the disaster if sin is not black, if those young dudes outside the station singing hip hop and cypher have a chance, 
stamped on their passport by the passport people who say black skin is metaphor? Have they ever written a poem with discipline and introspection? When they speak of craft, I wonder why did I become a poet? Why do I love language? What do I know of words with my father doused in silence? I know the bent notes of my life. The lyric is not good enough. The blue niggers like monk spectacle in the August sun. The slave ship, shit, hip, knowledge is not good enough. Like them boys fist balled tight looking for bull's eyes. For the anger and the shape shift Negroes who smiled in the night, white teeth and sung a song like Moses, who ended in blood and begging, sadness and the evidence of things unseen. Like racism, death, dying and a voice, rarely written, scrawled on a bathroom wall, 95 South, somewhere between Roanoke and Bristol. I read, I need something else like Sunra. My mans, my boys, yeah, like T talking that talk that said, talk is art and articulate, is copper wire bent around a stone and called jewelry, like the Afro beauty on the head of women who need the contrast knob and adjustment to the black and white 1983 zenith to be called beautiful. The craft of Negro lips unappreciated in this joint. I would like to own my own salvation, like the mega pastors own Lear jets and make a heaven of my own words. Sing a song, heavy enough, be good enough, be backwards, make some cake, shake and bake, be that thing that keeps the lights on in the world. Like dancing, animals in the circus, so sharp, that nigga like, damn, dancing in September, coming in from the fields, Cotton picking Negroes smelling like work, craft on their ass. My uncle who couldn't read, stirring wild turkey into eggnog in November, whispering into my ear, slow and methodically, you do it like this, like this. Yeah, awesome poem. And that was uh, Witchcraft from uh, Inheritance, the first book that we read from uh, two years ago now. And I just love, I mean, you just crank out these lines, but a line like, uh, be that thing that keeps the lights on in the world, you know, like, like lines like that just pop off the page. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about what this book is doing? Because it's sort of a, you know, the new book, I mean, the new book is One Shoe Marching Towards Heaven, uh, which I'll put on the screen here for now, but it's a beautiful cover too. But um, the, the two books seem kind of related as they, they're exploring the same thing, which is sort of like... Um, the black predicament, I guess, um, first through the lens of family and father, and then and then through sort of more an, an inward-looking lens. Uh, do you want to describe just what, what the new book is doing and, and the relationship between the two? Okay, yeah. Um, the new book is, you know, it picks up where where the old one left off. And, and again, as you said, first book, family uh, and inheritance, and, and mother and father. And then in this one, really... It, it, it's about, uh, it really sort of leads to a third book. That's the easiest way to explain it is that, you know, I study the Yi Ching and, you know, I study Tai Chi. And so one of the important pieces in this book are the Coens. 
and koans are, you know, the Zen Buddhist teaching tools. So, you know, the, the common one is uh, this uh, one shoe. Well, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And the idea of one shoe marching towards heaven is a koan. So it sort of challenges some of the ideas about poetry in the sense that the koans are as much about dismantling thought as conveying a very clear thought. And I thought about that with the Rumsfeld poem, you know, at the beginning and his famous quote, which is so Taoist, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, at the heart of Taoism is, you know, he who knows, you know, knows that he does not know. It's a very common Taoist phrase. Um, and then it talks about, I mean, Taoism, if you read the Tao Te Ching, it constantly deals with the unknown. So the Cohen's are partially about dismantling thought in this sort of weird Buddhist Zen tradition. And then the other thing is that they're numbered in conjunction with uh, the Yi Ching hexagrams. And so if somebody were in the same way that maybe the, the Western canon operates in, uh, in certain texts, and if you look up references, they add to the layers of reading. Those koans, uh, if you go and read the Yi Ching hexagrams, that correspond to the numbers of the Cohen's, though there's no reference made to China or the Yi Ching, it becomes a doorway for African-Americans to be able to con contemplate one of the oldest books in the world. So very complicated, but <laughs> again, the way that the book works is that that, that complexity is not, is not the root of the way that the poems work, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you want to just, because I think probably a lot of people don't know, and I don't even know really, I, I read them all, and I studied Eastern religion in college 20 years ago, but uh, I don't even know that much about it. There's 64 hexagrams in the I Ching, and they're sort of used for divination too, right? So they're kind of like koans. Um, can you explain how, how you got to them as something that you appreciate, and, and just what they are for in, in historical context, just for people who don't understand, <laughs> like me? Okay, yeah, and so the I Ching is a, divinate, it's a divination tool, uh, which is similar to Ifa. You know, Ifa in uh, in the West African tradition, Ifa has 128 Odu, which is a multiple of 64. And then the Yi Ching has 64 hexagrams. And like everybody knows the Wu-Tang Clan. So the Wu-Tang Clan is based on something Chinese called the Pagua. And so when the RZA created the Wu-Tang Clan, he assigned each one of the MCs in the Wu-Tang Clan one of the fundamental energies in that Pagua. There are eight of them. Eight times eight is 64. That's where you get the 64. But the easiest way for poets to look at it is all the I Ching is are 64, say, lowest common denominator metaphors for how energy works in the universe. That's the easiest way to understand it, you know, which is, again, they're just metaphors for, for, for energy relationships. What's important for me is that the African-American mind comes into education via the Western world. And a lot of what it is that I've learned about China has sort of opened me up to, to learning how to think in a different way. Hmm. And so one of the things that, you know, I want to do next, you know, the next book would be 64 colons that all correspond to those Yi Ching hexagrams. So maybe, you know, in a hundred years or whatever, somebody can show up and they can think about the African-American experience, but then they can bridge the African-American experience with the way it is that the Chinese system of thought works, you know?
mm-hmm. which I just think is something really important for African-Americans. I have another outlet instead of being in a system and sort of complaining about we have this binary relationship of black and white and it's opposition and it's heaven and hell and it doesn't it doesn't really work for us. I mean, the step beyond that, which is very difficult because nobody understands it, <laughs> but the step beyond that is to reconcile that energy in a different way. So that's the heart of the book, you know. Yeah, yeah, great explanation. I think the next poem you want to read was a koan. Do you want to do that, the the code? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, let me go back on my list and find the page number. Uh, 69. 69, okay. And so it says, uh, code, the koans begin. Some of the slaves grew depressed over their condition. They got under before they got over. Master's therapists who had studied the great theories of the human spirit, explained first that God would straighten things out, but only if they worked hard at it. First God, God first. Then onto the philosophies of great men, many who believed a nigger was worthy of slavery. He explained the ways one must approach a predicament with the right frame of mind. Whatever you do, don't run away. You can't run away from your problems. You must stay in the difficult position and deal with them. There is no freedom in running away. My name is Code. The koans begin from one shoe marching towards heaven. Um, do you want to explain a little bit, too, about the, the concept of heaven? Because heaven... Um, which I didn't realize too until I read, you know, about the book in the back. I think is that heaven's a different uh, construct in in uh, in, the, in Chinese tradition. That that there's a different role of heaven than we think of as some kind of future destination. But heaven playing a role right now. Um, do you want to do you want to explain how that plays into the the koan that is the the title of the book? Uh, yeah, you know, um, yeah, heaven. You know, again, when I when I mentioned, you know, the pagua and the in the Wu Tang. So you know, if you have the eight fundamental forces they're heaven earth fire water uh wind uh moon thunder and mountain but heaven and earth are opposed to each other but again the opposite of heaven is earth not that the opposite of heaven is hell Mm -hmm. and so that's a fundamental when i'm teaching my students in class i always say you know what's the opposite of heaven and everybody says hell and then i say no 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 and in in chinese thought the opposite of heaven is earth. And then the other idea is that there's heaven and there's earth. And then there's a Taoist saying that heaven is great, earth is great, and humans are great. And so heaven is great, earth is great, and humans exist in between heaven and earth, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so again, I mean, once you marching towards heaven, like any Cohen is about the contradictions in thought, just like the last poem. I mean, the real issue is when somebody says there's no freedom in running away, I mean, it's a contradiction. And when that's spoken to you by a person that keeps you enslaved, it's really clear it's a contradiction. And so the point is not to teach you what you're supposed to do, but it's to get you to think about constantly in your life, you're encountering these contradictions and and, and trying to make that a poem. Like instead of a poem having this definitive statement about principles that we all know, and then everybody agrees and like, yeah, that's a great poem. What about the poem that unravels the pre-existing codes of thought? Mm-hmm. And so that's that, that's what the coin. But again, I mean, that's a really difficult thing to do. And in a stage where African-Americans 
are more formalist than anything. I mean, African-Americans have won more Pulitzer Prizes in the last 10 or 12 years than they did in the history of the entire country. So African-Americans are making very clear poetic statements that everybody recognizes as good. <laughs> and, and they're getting rewarded for that. But there's something else about our predicament where, you know, there's some other there's some other work we can do. So it's part. Of, and that's the reason I read the earlier poem about craft, mm -hmm. because, I, you know, that that poem is about dealing with that tension about what does it mean to write a good poem and what is the work that a good poem does and, and how that gets recognized by the culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's maybe why I love your poetry so much is because it reaches for that mystery sort of beyond thought in a way that uh, not a lot of poets do. Um, uh, I should say, uh, if anybody has any questions for Brother Yao, I'm watching on the uh, chat message on YouTube and Facebook. So if anybody has any questions, I will pass them along. So please leave them in the chat windows at those two places. Not Twitter. I don't pay attention to Twitter. But uh, everywhere else, leave a question if you would like. Uh, do you want to hear some more poems? Or read some more poems, I guess. I want to hear some more poems. Okay. Um, and let me see which, what's the next one that I came up with. I got this list up here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cohen number 11, which is uh, no way. Let me find the page number here. 547. Okay. Okay, and it says uh, Cohen number 11, no way. When you find yourself among the many selves slaved, you will know the slave. No self, no slave. No more, no way. That was a koan number 11, no way. Um, and I don't know. Um, maybe I, I was reading about um, on your free black space blog, um, and you had these lectures called the Black, uh, the black Lin Lecture Series. And, uh, and you know, the, the yin is the feminine energy, right, um, of the yin-yang. And uh, do you want to explain about how that plays into to all this, too, that you're, you're talking about? Okay. And, 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 you know, and I mean, yeah, yin is the feminine energy. And then again, if you look at the white and black of the yin and yang, it's the, it's the black part, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing, too, is, you know, uh, the, uh, and I just have to say this, is that whereas in the Bible, you know, you can you can easily find that there are things about the Bible that suggest that women are marginalized, right? If you read the Tao Te Ching, it's really really clear about women. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I mean, it's like I I get sustained by the Great Mother, and then it all so there's it's almost like the most esteemed thing that you can do is be Yin, and then you know I I study Tai Chi, which is a Yin martial art. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea there is that. You practice, uh, you practice being soft, and you learn about what the power is in being soft and being passive. So when you get to Black Yin, you know the thing that I'm just getting at is that African Americans, it's like if the police stop you, I mean you have to be soft. Mm -hmm. I mean it's the whole point. I mean you have to be passive, and you can call that feminine, but it's a power that again, women have it, mm -hmm. but everybody can practice and adopt that. And so there's a lot of frustration that comes from the African-American community because we don't want to be soft or we imagine that when we're forced to be soft, we really want to be hard because we think being hard is more powerful. Mm -hmm. 
But within Chinese culture, it's really clear that whether you got to be soft or hard, there are proper ways to cultivate power under, uh, under either circumstance. So African-Americans in the South, a lot of times are, by their nature, they understand they're not more powerless. They just understand yin power some, in some other ways because the phenomena of racism and the way it constructs their lives demands that they cultivate that type of power in some different ways. So that's a lot of what the black yin, uh, you know, lectures and ideas about. Mm-hmm. I know I, I know I sound so much like a philosopher outside of a poet, but I guess I guess philosophers and poets have always had, uh, you know, connections, you know. I mean, you know, they, they go together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the soft power of like a like water to erode rock, you know, that, you know, there's a way that that's more powerful in a lot of ways. Um, do you want to read another poem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll read this one, uh, Cohen number 18, working on what's spoiled. If your mother hurts you, be gentle with the memory. Gently untangle the knots as though her hair was like a white woman's. Long and stringy, unravel it and then braid it again softly into the night. If your father hurts you, Try not to descend into the fog of that nigger ain't shit. Many do not know their fathers or what forest he runs through still to this day. Work on what has been spoiled by the heavy rain and storms. What has lost its luster, the dirt, the worn shoe shines again with elbow grease and sweat. Know what you must do, how it is done. And that was uh, Koan 18, working on what's spoiled from one shoe marching towards heaven. Um, you, you mentioned your, your practice in Tai Chi. Um, how, how does that relate to poetry? I mean, it feels like the, the you know, that that's the movements of, um, you know, the chi. Um, is it something you do every morning? And I think you mentioned before in the last podcast that you write every morning. Um is is sort of that like a physical manifestation of the poetry? Do you, I'm really interested in the way you write, because there's a um, there's really the sense of like like scripture almost coming out, like you're channeling something. And I'm really interested in how you get to that space. Is Tai Chi part of your writing process? And you know, this is the thing, man. You know, at this point in time, man, Tai Chi has completely overtaken my writing. <laughs> I yeah, I, I haven't even written a poem in a long time. Um, and, and when I listened to the old Rattle interview, one of the things that, you know, I talked about was, you know, in my ritual and writing every day, you know, I'm about, you know, poetry for me is a way to translate or to speak about specific modes of human cognition. And what I like about Tai Chi is that I am able to communicate and use those modes of cognition and be in my body and use my mind and then feel some spiritual energy as a connection with that. And then I don't have to name it. Like, that's part of why I really like it so much. Because, and you know, and again, like, when we talk about the trope of the body, I, I don't even understand anybody running around talking about a black body. It's absurd. I mean, why? I mean, because, you know, our bodies are given to us as ways. I mean, there are advantages to the body no matter how anybody looks at you. You know, there's in, their internal dynamics. And so we could just as sure create a whole mode of art 
that talks about how powerful that is to be conscious in a body as compared to thinking about an external idea of how someone views our body. Because the one thing I know about my body, and I've learned it through Tai Chi, is, I mean, you have no idea. No matter what's going on, you know, whether I'm short, fat, skinny, you have no idea when you look at someone how vast and powerful their mind is, spiritually where they are, and the capacity for connection. And so Tai Chi has provided me with a certain a certainty that I guess, you know, to sound like the poem, you know, has a lot to deal with known unknowns and learning about the unknown, but a certainty that I can, I can engage in that dialogue and do that work. And I don't have to prove it to anybody or tell anybody about it, but it's still, it's like I exist. Hmm. And, and, and I'm certain of that when I practice, you know, so, so I, I think, I mean, I'll probably get back to writing, you know, I want to finish this book of Cohen's, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's the the most important thing. But I'm not sure at this point if I'll ever write. But I, I actually, I have another poem that I do want to read, but uh, that that I accidentally wrote in uh-huh. the last <laughs> in the last two months or whatever. But but again, I'm I, I'm not sure if I write in the same way that I used to write mm-hmm. because you know I just it, it, it's all wide open. You know, I, it's almost like I don't know what to write because so many of the things that I experience seem to be beyond words. Hmm, interesting. Do, do you feel like, I mean, if, if Tai Chi is doing the same thing, do, but there's no record of it, you know, and there's nothing you can pass on, it's just internal. Do you feel like, like the, because you can't pass it on to anybody, that, that something's missing out? Um, you know, one of the things that I, that this book feels like it's written for black people, right? I mean, it, it's not written sort of... Um, you know, a lot of poetry about, um, you know, racial stuff is written sort of toward white audiences. And uh, this is very clearly, it seems to me, written for a black audience um, and as a wisdom to be passed on, you know. And um, but, but if I'm, you're so doing... glad, I'm so glad you said that, man, because I, I, I mean, I think. I mean, I think the best of English literature was written for English people, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just a natural thing. But but again, to 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 note that difference. And again, I'm not really, and you, I heard you say this earlier, it's like, I'm a very political guy, deep in my heart, you know? Mm-hmm. But I don't really wear my politics on my sleeve. But that is a statement that comes directly out of black arts, mm-hmm. you know, which is one of the most sort of banned and disrespected movements that ever occurred, you know? But it's really important, you know, I think to, you know, to communicate in a way that's sort of rooted in the culture. So the use of nigger, you know what I mean? And some people got to deal with that. Um, And then even like some of the phrasing, you know, I mean, there are all these little phrases and stuff in there, which, you know, should give some readers a sign of like how expansive they can be when they're writing that it doesn't have, that language doesn't have to be, you know, elevated, which is not the best word or formalized, like, cause there are ways that we do that within the culture, mm-hmm. but I'm so glad, I'm so glad that you said that and, and, and you noted that because, because I also think that everybody can read it, mm-hmm. but then part of what happens is in the same way I have to go and check references. Mm-hmm. The book's very layered because yeah. some readers may have to check the references for the African-American culture phrasing. Mm-hmm. And then there's another layer up underneath that, which is all the philosophy that we've been talking about, which is somebody really wants to get into the book they can begin to understand uh, Chinese culture and Taoism. Like the mm-hmm. poem I just read has like 
five or six references to the Tao Te Ching. Yeah, yeah. Untangle the knots is a very common things that lost its luster. There are all of these. So there are all these ways to read it. But instead of trying to create a piece of art that I know people will understand and sort of going into the scrabble box of all the education and Western literature I know, part of what I'm settling into in this book is being able to use that work that comes from the Yi Ching and Tai Chi and the Tao Te Ching and then African-American culture and the way people speak in the community. Yeah, yeah. Well, reading it, it feels to me like you're sort of having overhearing like an intimate conversation where wisdom is being passed down to a younger generation. That's how that's how I feel like I'd describe the, the experience to me of reading it. But I was wondering, because you mentioned that Tai Chi does the same thing, but you, you can't pass it down in Tai Chi, though. You know, I mean, it's sort of like you're going off in your own or internal place and there's no record of it. Um, yeah, I beg my son every day to study with me. Mm-hmm. I beg him, you know, and I won't use force because that goes against Taoism and Tai Chi. <laughs> uh-huh. And he's older, you know. And then the other thing is I've really thought about, even though I'm 50, having another child, man, because I'm just like, because the thing is, Tai Chi was created like 400 years ago and it's got clear lineage through generations. So, yeah, you're right that it is a really serious issue. And I teach some people, but almost all my students are older. But I'm actively looking for a young person that I can teach Tai Chi to so that they can teach it to another. That it, it, the question that you raise is, is really powerful. And But I also think that's a very, the Jollies, mm-hmm. you go to West Africa and the Griots and, you know, and a Jolly, and, you know, they always give the example with Roots that, Alex Haley goes to, you know, Senegal or Gambia and he sits down with a jolly and the jolly gives him a, uh, begins to tell him who his ancestors are and does that for a whole day. Then they go to sleep. He comes back up, tells him who his ancestors are the next day. He does it for three days. And so they have this clear lineage that's connected to, you know, the quarter of Giada, And then it, it's, it's about poetry. It's about uh, djembe's orchestra music. And so that's one of the things, I mean, I would even argue that rather than relying on ideas about documented history, that part of what folks need to do is sort of internalize that within their families and just be clear about, because that's really the way the record is going to, is like the documented history sort of grows after that not so people come from families where they don't have their history and they go to the library but there's another level where the library exists within the actual family and is in the people and if they're systematic about it they do and i think that is a lot of that's the end of slavery Hmm. i mean that's the real end of slavery the real end of slavery is not some uh some law you know the real end of slavery is a clarified consciousness that's able to do some things in some very different ways. And, and, and then again, pass that down to generations. Cause that's what Africans were doing before we got here, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah. 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 Great explanation. Uh, do you want to read another poem? Yeah, sure. And this is, uh, you know, the other thing in the book is it's a fair amount of poems that sort of read like jazz. And this is, uh, because I've always been fascinated with uh, the jazz poems. So there are Cohen's here. And then there are also poems that are working with my idea of a jazz aesthetic, you know? And so this is Broken Glass. 
Hope is Billy's voice raised to the tone of perfection so that you know she floated just out of the range of the melody to say things be that way sometime. Almost all the time, if you come from where I'm from, sometimes you dream money and wake up with pennies. Other times you dream peace and wake up at war. Blackbirds in the trash on Sunday, organs medicate mourning for preaching. Bad boys roll over, liquor breath in their beds, shake their head at last night, shoving sheets between their legs. A cold winter morning has hope frosted on the windows. Write your name in it, steam out of a tiny cup. Nothing lasts forever, all disappears. Cold will win against heat until some fool thinks to sing, I love you, I was loved. This is what you have done to me. Heartbreak is about eternal resurrection. Thin spirit, crackheads, wandering in the early morning or late at night, what difference does it make? Billy's voice blowing, it's changing geometry, a flag shaped by wind and the body being blown away. And that was uh, Broken Glass from One Shoe Marching Toward Heaven. I want to make sure we get to enough poems, so why don't you, can you read another one? Okay, and I didn't put this one on the list, and I think I may have read this last time, but uh, I want to read it again. But uh, this is uh, on page 30. My father rides his horses into the distance. What now, she asks, and slams the door. Violence hidden and the sex underneath that. Walk across the room and cry a little, but don't let nobody see it. Both of them like opposites and ideas with flesh pasted onto skeletons. Then the dust comes, then the speeches, the long rants and heads, fights that have no words, the dead people who could not, could not rest, the sun going down. The old streets of the city where once there were horses, a man singing ice, milk, butter, bread what it's all about he goes outside and talks to the man in the always winter the cold heated by his breath he whispers and the white smoke rises he sings the only song he knows he will not go back into the house he buys a horse who is too old to run and grabs the rope and walks him down the street and into the night and the cold swallows him. Yeah, that's a great poem. My father rides his horse into the distance. Um, I was just having a, I saw a discussion on Facebook earlier about, um, about, about the way that we sort of teach creative writing as being um, the Western influences of it. It was, a, it was an article about, I think, the, the show don't tell, the idea of um, you know, using visual imagery in poetry. And you having such a, a, a multicultural background um uh, how much of of um those sort of writing craft and, and the first poem talked about it too which is why i was thinking about it earlier um how much of writing craft do you think is universal and how much of it do you think is cultural like how much like, like um you know i feel like the 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 modern western 
conception of poetry is very like materialistic in a way where we it's sort of rooted in like objects in time and in the east more um rooted in like a timelessness um and sort of a mythological background uh but i don't know what is your conception of that like how do you think the poetry is different in china um you know versus now and, and how much of that is universal as we you know we share 99.9 percent of the same genes and and language develops in the same processes and things for everybody. So, so I don't know. Like, there's a way that poetry is universal, and the way there's a way that it's not. Uh, how do you think of that as you as you look at both East and West? You know, and that's the thing is, I understand much more about, and I mean, nobody understands anything about China, mm-hmm. which takes us back to Rumsfeld. You know, <laughs> it's nothing but known. <laughs> you know, known unknowns. I mean, you. You know, China is just some whole nother level stuff, you know, uh-huh. which is why there's no discovery and like challenge ideas of Western intellectualism are, are different, very different from the way China is approached because the, the amount of accumulated knowledge is so vast, you know. But my relationship to Chinese poetry is more limited than my relationship to, say, Taiji and the Yi Ching, you know, and Taoism, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I preface with that. But the other thing I would just say, man, is like, and it's really important, the English scholar, man, is an agent of the empire, mm-hmm. you know? And like, so like when the British and people are running around talking about transcendental Western literature, how can you separate that from colonialism? Everybody else is like, if they didn't have literature, it gets destroyed. It can't get taught. So there's a false proposition in the Western transcendental. But I think what is really universal is metaphor and metaphor as a tool which helps us convey internal human cognition that doesn't have words and connect it. The whole act of comparison is to be like, Tim, you don't understand what I'm saying. Oh, like I always use the example of, what is it called? A durian, mm-hmm. which is a... a, a um, a fruit in China that they eat. And a lot of people don't know it. So I say, Tim, you know what a p- pineapple looks like. I use a comparison, a simile, to take you all the way across the world and begin to sketch the initial part in your mind. And then what I do is I make adjustments to it. So I say it's like a pineapple, but it's bigger. Mm-hmm. Then the color is almost the same. The skin is very similar. And that's what's universal about poetry and and language and what anybody in the world does. And again, if you go back to the British scholar, I mean, like the whole example of somebody's skin being white as snow. I mean, if you live in Africa and it don't snow where you at, you're on the equator. It's not that the literature is bad, mm-hmm. and but it's definitely not transcendental if the comparative that's being used is part of nature that you don't have access to. Mm-hmm. So again, the other thing about the engagement with China, man, is like, I mean, they be translating all the time. And that's something that you, you as a poet, and poets do that, but you know, it's really, really important to understand, okay, I create this work of literature that works within this certain conceptual universe, but the idea of who's going to translate that for other people is it's just very, very, uh, very, very important because the translators then are doing this really sophisticated work like computers, heavy logic, because they're translating 
one conceptual universe into another conceptual universe and they're piecing it all together so that the work of art has integrity you know yeah yeah yeah, that makes sense. Um, we're starting to break up a little bit. I'm going to hang up and just call you right back immediately to get a better okay, connection. Yeah, one, just one second. Um, so, so about China, um, the thing, I, I want to talk about the mystery of China because it is such a mystery. It's fascinating. The thing that I always think about is that there's a, there are pyramids in China. There's a whole valley of pyramids. And, uh, and when people ask, like, why don't you dig these up? They're like, well, they'll be there in a thousand years. So we can dig them up then. <laughs> and the difference between that mindset and, and like our mindset here in the United States is just so vast that that's like the example that I think of for how different the way of just situating yourself within the universe is. Um, so you talk a little bit about that because you've been, you know, you, you love China. You've been there several times for extended periods of time. When was the last time you were there? Like like th- two, three years ago, something like that? Yeah, I think 2018. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I, I planned to go back to the COVID summer for maybe three months, you know, mm-hmm. and, I, and you know, with COVID, you know, I wasn't able to go. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just, you know, and again, I, I got to say this with Tai Chi, you know, is, I mean, I practice Tai Chi almost 10,000 hours now. I mean, I, some days that's all I do. Um, and that's very Chinese. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm gonna go, I'll go to China and I'll be practicing Tai Chi with somebody in China who've been practicing three hours a day or five hours a day, or they did that for 20 years mm-hmm. or 30 years. So it's like, I'm deep in the art, but I'm nowhere near an expert. And then that's the other thing that you get as you do it is you start to understand how... You think it's new, but you're not discovering anything about Taiji. And that's an important thing you got to learn about the Chinese mind Mm -hmm. is that people do things for five decades and discover nothing because somebody else did it for seven decades Mm -hmm. before them. And so, you know, and Chinese people as a culture, you know, they're fascinated by America and our capacity to discover things and invent. Mm-hmm. But the other reality is, is that it's only like a 1% to be inventing stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a very small group that invents and we all benefit from that. And that's what makes America great. But the other thing about China, too, is that in terms of arts and some of the things they do, like when you deal with math or even what people call Chinese duplication. I mean, it's sort of like if a child writes five sentences and you copy the sentences that the child wrote, you didn't steal nothing from them. And Chinese people in some regards are so sophisticated Mm -hmm. that they imagine that the things that people, they're like, we didn't invent it. But at the same time, if we can duplicate it in 30 seconds, it can't be as as much as you think it is. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, you you can't be that smart if, oh, I'm like, oh, what did you do? Boom, 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 boom. And I immediately do that. And, and the other thing I would say about that, again, to avoid politics, but intellectual property is inseparable from colonialism, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you're in somebody else's country, you got all the coffee, all the tea, all of that, and you got warships in the harbor. Of course, you own all the intellectual property, <laughs> whereas the existence of China sort of defies some of those key things. And all of that is really connected to the civilization. And, and the last thing I would say is, and I mean, and folks know this, this is pretty common, but the imperial exams in China, you know, existed for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And you could take the imperial exams and be the poorest person in China and become an advisor to the, to the emperor. 
So this idea of test taking and like, you know, somebody's like the SAT. It's like they got something like the SAT that they have for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So it's just, uh, you know, again, it's a wormhole because, but what I think for Americans, like that's the other thing about China is I think African-Americans, if they learn more about China, they could serve America well. Mm-hmm. Like it's not opposition. We're Americans. So it's like anything I know about China, anybody can come and talk to me about it. And my perspective is unique because I got this yin approach. So I got a different doorway into the culture. But, you know, I think Americans in general, African-Americans in specific, are going to have to learn more about China in the next. I mean, this is the worst hundred years in Chinese history that ever occurred. Mm-hmm. The last hundred that we had. So, I mean, that's over. <laughs> so the next the next hundred or thousands of years, Americans, and that's the end of colonialism and some of this stuff too. Like I joke with people all the time. I'm like, why would I believe in white supremacy when I lived in China? Mm-hmm. I mean, why? I mean, because there's no white supremacy and it's not like something I got to fight. It's inevitably coming to an end. Mm-hmm. And, but, but the end of white supremacy is what we have to learn. Like, we're going to have, and, and, and that's the thing is that black people, we, they can be mad at white people, but we operate within the same limits of the American psyche that, that white people do. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to China, black Americans and white Americans don't know nothing about China. Yeah. So, so we're in a position where the adjustment of the way that the world is managing puts it. And, and again, even English scholars are really valuable in that, in, 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 in that work. Which is, again, people like us who are poets, part of what we can do is we can talk about these kind. If we understand those Chinese concepts and then we're talking to an American audience, our knowledge of both sides of the fence really serves America in this very powerful way, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting, too, just talking about the two different cultures because it's a, back to the yin-yang thing, you know? It's like one is yin and the other is yang. And, and it's, you need them both in a way. Um, you do, yeah. And so having just one side is, is dysregulated. Um, talk about, just about, um, you know, Qigong. I, t- I took a Qigong class, or a few, in college as I was studying Eastern religion. And um, I could never get into it. I always felt like I was faking it. Um, you know, the idea of the, you, where you can feel the qi. And um, what, do, what do you think it is? Do, do you feel like qi is an actual physical entity um, or is it more of a metaphorical concept? I'm just wondering for personal, because I tried really hard for like a semester <laughs> to feel oh, cheap. Yeah, yeah. But 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 that's the thing is, I was lucky when I first started studying Tai Chi that I read a book that was like, you know, if you don't feel the chi, you will at least after ten years. Mm-hmm. So, and so, I was dumb enough, and I was dumb enough to practice for ten years. So, so, so one one semester is not enough. Is what you're saying. It's 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 yeah. really hard, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, you know, and but, you know, I, and I'll tell you an interesting story. I have a student who went to uh, India to study yoga. And when he got there, he showed up and he's a brilliant guy, young guy. And when he got there, they were meditating and they asked people to visualize something. And so he visualized he saw something. Right. And he stood up and he told like the yogi or whoever he was like, yeah, I just saw this. And he said, no, you didn't. He said, you don't even practice enough and had him sit down, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's part of the way some of this stuff works is that when we're thinking about performance and, and showing that we have knowledge, 
there's a way where we want to comprehend something in this way that's very different than if those contours and these these ways of teaching human cognition have been practiced by all these people for these long periods of time, you know? Mm -hmm. So the real issue, and again, we can benefit from that by looking at Chinese culture or, you know, some of the, some parts of Chinese culture is, I mean, it just takes time, you know, and you don't rush it, but everybody, most of the time when I'm teaching people Tai Chi, they always get mad. And the part of them that gets mad is the same part of you that when you're teaching somebody else, and they don't understand what they're saying. You get frustrated with them. But the truth is you can't even do that with your own body. Mm -hmm. Like you can't tell your body, you can't talk to your body with words and your body obeys. But then we get to people and we're like, we be saying stuff to people and they don't understand. And we're like, oh no, but I said it. But please, your words are not really what's negotiating. They're not that important. So Again, you know, if you ever get back to it, and I'm sure you will, but, you know, just give it just give it time. And I, and I always say this, too. Just be kind to yourself. Mm -hmm. The most important thing when you're trying to do something is be kind to yourself. But the measure, your ability to be kind to yourself is a measure of how what your capacity is for kindness with others. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us are just not that kind. <laughs> well uh we got about 10 minutes left i want to make sure we get a couple more poems at least do you want to do a poem and then a little bit more chat and then another poem so we got two left okay all right i'll do uh heaven number one which is on page 60 heaven number one <clears throat> later that day when i thought about heaven again i remembered you in the morning with your head resting back your eyes closed lips together like there were no words left in the world. I kissed you, looked out onto the street and saw the snow in the trees. A young boy in a blue cap riding his bike into the cold. I turned back to you, but you had risen then. And I watched you walk deeper into the house like a woman I never knew. Your dress was wrinkled and I thought about your hips. We had already made love and I wanted to kiss you again so that you would believe what I told you about the wild horses on the beach who eat out of strangers' hands and come to me in my dreams now almost every night. Yeah, that's heaven number one. One of my favorite poems in the book. I love that turn to the horses, which comes out of nowhere. Um, such a cool poem. Um, so, so everybody's just saying how much they're fascinated and blown away by uh, all your, your wisdom. Um, there's one question. Is it, have you ever been to the Wudang Mountains? It's my goal to go there one day. It's Bonnie Bouchard asked that. You ever been to the Wudang Mountains? I haven't, but maybe we should go together because uh, where I was, Wuhan, you know, mm -hmm. is, is only about maybe two hours from Wudang. And so I didn't get a chance to make it, but... Um, but I wanted to go because they say, you know, on, on Wudang Mountain, you know, it's just thousands of people practicing Tai Chi all day, you know. Uh -huh. Everybody makes a pilgrimage there and, you know, practices Tai Chi. Yep. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, I don't think we talked about this before, but but you owned a bookstore for a long time. Did we talk about this on the last podcast or was that something that I meant to ask and didn't? I think I didn't. Um, I, I just wonder what your experience of books is in literature, having that experience as both a writer and a bookstore owner. 
Um, you know, what I'm thinking is every time I talk to you, I'm thinking, uh, like, you should have a podcast. Like, why don't you sit down and have a podcast once a week where you talk and talk to people? Because it, it's fascinating um, stuff that you have. And that's sort of the new medium for ways things are, are transmitted, you know? Um, but but what was your experience with a bookstore? Um, do you think there's a future in books and bookstores? Was it the internet that killed it? Was it culture that killed it? Like, what happened with the bookstore? Yeah, and, and I just had a bad partnership. You know, mm-hmm. and I and I say it that way, which is almost casual, but I mean it's I mean the only reason I was in China and studied Tai Chi and the Yi Ching is because it was that hard. <laughs> so I mean, so the only reason that I'm I'm in the place that I'm at is because it was so difficult. And 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 what's important about that too is that you know, a black bookstore is a very unique thing in African American culture. I always say there are less people that have owned black bookstores than people than black people that go to Harvard. Mm-hmm. or any Ivy League school. I mean, it's probably less than a thousand people in the history of this country. And ours was the largest and most successful. I mean, we had about $4 million in sales and 40 employees, you know? Mm-hmm. So the real error was just, were the things that I'm trying to reconcile in the poetry in China. I mean, it's like there are some serious conceptual problems that, again, affect operations and the way we relate to one another. And if you dare start a business, like, again, you know, like people get jobs, they get Pulitzers, they do all that. But black institutions, most people don't build those. But when you build them and you put your money on that, part of what you start to understand is you need something like Taiji, that specific, detailed, been around a long time and governs internal dynamics, especially internal dynamics. You need something that's more precise to be able to do that type of work. And a lot of what we talk about in black culture is really the avoidance of that work. Like simply writing a poem or writing a book or saying it is not the same as doing it. Mm-hmm. And so all of the things that I've talked about prior to this are really, it's me trying to reconcile problems that occurred within the context of the business culturally, misunderstandings, confusion and all of those things so that hopefully one day I can build another business, you know? Uh-huh. And have, have you thought about doing a podcast? I mean, you're, uh, the, the black free space, your blog spot is uh, just full of amazing, really interesting content. And it feels like you could just, you could do that um, in a way where it, it's found time and people can just listen to you while driving and things. It's a great medium. Have you, have you thought about doing that? I'm thinking about it now that you said it. <laughs> I mean, I, I had, a, I had another friend that I talked to, uh, that that had mentioned that to me, but you know, I mean, I've been very isolated too. You know, all the, I mean, that's part of what it took to practice. Tai, like, I, I practice, I may practice Tai Chi three hours a day, and then I, you know, I talk to the Yi Ching for another two hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I almost know the whole book by heart. You know, so it's like there's a certain isolation that's required to do that. And then I'm also not big on the words thing. You know, I mean, even though I'm talking to you, and we have this relationship that's lasted for quite a, a bit of time. You know, I, I, a lot of times I just don't talk to people. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just sort of studying or, you know, out my own head. But, yeah. but I'm going to think about that. I really appreciate that. I, I think you should. I th- I'd, I'd love to listen to to it much more. Uh, and that kind of, one of the things I was wondering, too, was how come fewer, you know, not many of the bo- poems in the books are published. And I was wondering why you don't seem to pursue publication, because there are great poems in here that you could publish really easily. Um, so I guess it's the reclusive I don't nature. Even, I don't even submit anymore. I, I, yeah. I, I'm not, yeah, I mean... 
Because again, man, submission is a bad word, man. It is. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's a bad word. I mean, you know, I run around and show that I'd be like, Timothy, submit to me. You know, I mean, it's crazy. I like, I like to call it an offering, make an offering. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I rarely submit poems, uh, poems now, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But I, but I may, I may get back out there and, uh, yeah, and submit a few. Yeah, <laughs> well, keep coming, keep coming this direction. Uh, we're pretty yeah. much out of time. Do you want to finish out with a, a last poem? Okay, yeah, and I, I do love song. Yeah, because that's my favorite. My I think in the whole poems, book. Yeah, love song. Before I was born and born to an ambition. My father dreamed my mother as the woman he would one day love, not knowing her face or the innocence she cultivated like a small cup of tea on a large round table in the house of my grandparents. My grandfather's anger rattled the table. He slammed his hand down and my mother sipped calmly from the chipped teacup. There was a place near the rim where she ran her tongue across it, the tiny waves. I was a dream then, we all are dreams. Nothing is impossible, they would tell me. We are all like the land, boundless and deep, stretching into horizons, beautiful and vast. When I am singing their song, even now, under the gentle fires of a calm life, I think of their love, it's shaped like cat, like clouds covering a moon at night. Sometimes you can see through them, the moon there shining bright, a strange flower in the sky. Awesome. That was Love Song um, from One Shoe Marching Towards Heaven, the newest book by Brother Yao. Uh, thanks so much for being a guest. It's just always my pleasure. I love talking to you. Uh, thanks for being here and sharing uh, this new book with us. Hey, man, thank you, man. And uh, yeah, disrespect and love to rattle, man. I appreciate you. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Take care, Brother Yao. All right. Be safe, man. Yeah, you too. All right. Yeah, so that was Brother Yao. And uh, now you can see why he's the first poet I wanted to have on for a second time. Because I love uh, just, there's so much so much to share um, in, inside Brother Yao between those ears. And it's just great to sit and listen and talk to him. Uh, let's see. So we're going to take a brief break. I'm going to get everything set up. And we're going to do the open lines. Uh, we have uh, poet respond poems, if you want. We have a prompt. And the prompt this week was to write a poem based on an idiom. So uh, if you have your idiom poems, uh, I will. Uh, we can share those. Now, how you do it, let me put this up on screen. I'll put the, uh, this new open mic show details up on screen during the break. So what you do is you email your poem first to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com if you haven't yet. That way I can pull it up and show it on screen as you read. Then you can call in over one or the other over Skype or the phone. So over Skype, it's rattle poetry, all one word. Just uh, send me a chat message, say hi. That'll get you on the call list for tonight, and I'll call you back when it's your turn. The other option is to use the phone 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. And uh, just let it ring a few times, hang up, and likewise, you'll get onto the uh, phone call list. We have a, let's see, we have a uh, Angela Gardner, Richard Westheimer, Nivedita, David Reagan. Looks like a new first-time caller. We'll uh, accept that. We have a uh, Lincoln Harris. We have a uh, Susan Talley so far. Those are the people who would like to. Um, Greg Bell and Nurse Shanti both called on Sunday when we were, uh, uh, yesterday when we were, um, 
off the air. So maybe they can come back too. So we have a lot of people coming up. So that's how you do it. I'm going to put on some music really quick and uh, stretch my legs and get everything set up. And then I will be right back with uh, Open Lines. back thanks everybody for your patience as i get up and stretch hope you could refill your glass and not sit still in a chair for so long either it's always good now uh, as i said this week's prompt was uh right here was to write a poem based on or containing an idiom uh, if you need help finding an idiom try the idiom generator at randomword.com slash idiom and that was your prompt for uh, this week and now i don't know, have you ever written a poem and you thought it would be fun and uh, you got halfway through, and you're kind of like, uh, what, have I, what am I doing with my life? Well, that was my experience this week. And um, in the middle of this heat wave, which I cannot stand the heat. I'm like a northern person. And uh, I moved up to the mountains to be as, as cold in Southern California as possible. And uh, I just don't like it when it's hot. And uh, so I wrote Idioms for a Heat Wave. And uh, here, here this goes right here. Idioms for a Heat Wave. <clears throat> the glass straw popped a buck dozen. And she gave me the cold shoulder as I slimed the door. But it wasn't the first time I'd smoked that bullet, and I never cry over curdled milk. I was on a cold booze chase, withering without her. She was my iceberg in a teacup, my always AC in the sky, but I was really farming at the mouth. Fry your eggs in a basket, I yelled, driving off, adding in sun to the jury. Time fries, and the heat was up. I won't beat a dried possum. She was the best thing since iced bread. But what was I, cooked liver? I was all rain in the shade until, I wa- until it wasn't. She hid the whale in the shed. She broke a keg. So we cooked two birds with one stone. Live and burn. Yeah, I was over the weather. So that was my idioms for a heat wave poem. And uh, Megan's poem is here, The Cowboy. <clears throat> the Cowboy. The Cowboy saddles up to the bar and dumps his stories in the tip jar, like gold coins from a suede satchel. They shine like ice in a glass, and like ice they melt fast. The cowboy walks home alone. His house is bare as coyote bones, after the vultures have had their fill. The space next to him in bed, cool and white as the walking dead. The cowboy leads a horse to water and makes him drink. His spurs are sharp, his saddle heavy as shame. It's easy to ride into the sun when each hip holds a gun. When the cowboy shoots the shit, we open wide to bite the bullet. Nobody ever caught his name. Bartender says he smells a rat. Cowboy winks and tips his hat. Well, that was fun, too. I guess that you know, idioms are a fun, uh, a fun prompt. So that was Megan's The Cowboy. And now uh, let's see what you have for us. We got an 803 uh, number, two. So we'll call uh, that 803. Let me get to a... I like to do what the first person is somebody who's um, usually on. Because that way I can tell you that you have to turn off your um, your stream when I call you. That's the other thing that's, that's important. Because otherwise there's an echo. Um, there's like a 30-second delay maybe. Maybe it's only 15 seconds if we're lucky or 10. But there's always a delay. And so you have to uh, turn off your broadcast when I call you. And you also have to read your own version of the poem. Uh, you can't read it off the screen because you're not at the same spot in real life. Reality is like, you know, 30 seconds ahead of the uh, stream. So you have to read your own poem. Let's call up um, 
Let's call up uh, Susan Talley. Hey, Susan, how are you doing today? I really enjoyed that poem. I love the list of um, how you weave them together. Oh, thanks so much. I'm glad you liked it. Um, so what do you, uh, you have that you want to share with us? I have a very short one. Okay. I think I might hear myself in the background if you want yeah. to turn that off. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. All right. I'll try to read it. <laughs> okay. Nothing they say amounts to a hill of beans, thought the boy from still waters runs deep. Besides, it's just girls talking their blue streaks. Behind his back, they tease the cat that got his tongue, but she raised her kittens on his pearls of wisdom. Oh, excellent. I love that. Um, it, it is, it's fun. These are, uh, they're ended up being fun. I, I didn't realize, it didn't occur to me that it would be like a fun, lighter prompt, but it, it, that's how they read. But maybe some of them to come are going to be heavier. <laughs> yeah, we'll see, but I, I like it so far. Thanks for sharing that, Susan. Thank you. Yeah, good night. That was Susan Talley. Uh, we'll call it Nothing They Say Amounts to a Hill of Beans. Is this my phone? Don't call me. I'm getting tons of spam calls lately. I don't know about you. I, my car's warranty is uh, expired. Did you know you could renew it? Robocall says every time, over and over and over again. Okay, let's see. Now let's call up a first-time caller. And we will go to um, to go toward the bottom. Let's do that... Uh, Let's call up, uh, oh, Lincoln Harris has been on before, but let's call up Lincoln Harris anyway. Hello? Hey, Lincoln, you are live on the air. How are you doing? If you want to come in on video, push your camera button. Okay. Hello? Excellent. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, sure, my pleasure. Let me fix the size. Um, so what do you have to share with us today? Uh, well, I had a poem called A Disquiet Force. Um, it was based on the 4th of July. Uh, I felt like this year I really, uh, needed a good 4th of July just to kind of make up for everything that we lost in the shutdown, but it didn't, it didn't really happen. And so I tried to explain why that was and, uh, I sent the poem in. I, hopefully you have it. Yeah, I do. I, let me, let me get to pull it up here. Um, let's see. Oh. We lost you. Well, I think, uh, let's see. Well, maybe we'll see if we can pull it up. I think the problem is he's on his phone. So, yeah, so this is the poem. Um, here you go. This is a disquiet fourth from, uh, from Lincoln Harris. What sounded like all the fireworks on earth over the holiday weekend couldn't assuage my dread at the memory of an insurrectionist mob swarming the U.S. Capitol not even six months before and the horrible notion that many of them would gladly return there if summoned forth again eats away at me still. That is a disquiet fourth. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, sorry we couldn't connect and figure that out, Lincoln, but uh, that was Lincoln Harris from Chicago, Illinois, with a disquiet fourth, the Fourth of July poem. And uh, oops, let me uh, do this. Okay, so let me call up now. Let's call up... Uh, We'll do David Regan in a minute. Let's do uh, Richard Westheimer right now. Hey, Richard, how are you doing tonight? Hey, Tim Green, I'm doing great. Uh, I wish I could send some of the water that is descending on us uh, your way. And... Yeah, I wish you could too. I saw that comment, and and you don't know how jealous. You know, we we get sometimes we get some monsoon. The first year we moved here, we had a huge thunderstorm in in July, 
and it was like flooding and the streets were washed out from the flash floods and i thought oh wow we get thunderstorms that's great and never never again <laughs> occasionally well, it, occasionally a couple but not many un- unfortunately our our rain is part of the same piece as your heat we mm-hmm. we are yeah. uh we we have these deluge rains where you know you get two three four inches an hour mm-hmm. uh which yeah. is tropical it's not yeah. you know it's from the jet stream that the jet stream's weaker because of the difference in temperature gradient between the North Pole and the equator. And so it's weaker, yeah. so it waves more. And you get these things called quasi-stationary Rossby waves that just mm-hmm. make everything stuck. They're like, a, you know, like some stuck, someone stuck in line. And uh, so you get tons of rain or you get tons of heat because everything just builds up. Yeah, um, and you get these, these you know, the, they you know, predicted this 20, 30 years ago that climate change would bring, you know, these super saturated uh clouds that would just dump on you yeah that's they're just stuck stuck in one place raining and raining and raining and i wish it would come here for sure yeah i wish they cloud seed too actually we had a lot of moisture and uh in in like the 60s they started they did a lot of cloud seeding here in the mountains we're in and it worked Mm -hmm. and they could do it but uh i think it's insurance reasons actually that they don't because oh. if there's flooding and damage from the flooding, then they're like there's county liability for causing the damage. But they could make it rain if they wanted. Anytime there's clouds around here, drop some silver iodide or whatever it is. Um, yeah. Anyway, what what did you want to share, Richard? Yeah. Uh, so I um, I sent you two poems. Emailed one was uh, my poets respond mm-hmm. poem, and the other was a prompt. Do you want one or the other yeah, or both? Whichever, whatever you want to do. Okay. Uh, well, if there's time, I'll do both. Yeah. Sure. Okay, um, so I'll do the Poets Respond first, okay. which is topical. Uh, and uh, that's silent by the Great Collapse, which is very much about this rainy time that we've had. Okay, well, I guess it doesn't need an introduction. Let, let's dive right in. Yeah, it does, does not. Silent by the Great Collapse. Off the coast of Yucatan, lightning ignites natural gas leaking from an underwater pipeline. From the air, it appears the sea itself is on fire. A rupture in the ocean roils in flame. Everything burns. On our dead-end country lane, scrolls of sycamore bark lie curled in the morning sun. Heat waves rise from the pavement, appear as if a breeze rustles the olive green husks, which lay still in the sullen air. Sycamore limbs spread broad overhead. I am grateful for shade. Some see an eye of fire. I see augury ripped through rolling waves, a dragon's breath caldera churning, fire from sea surface all the way down. What was alive in that pelagic column has fled. What was dead has howled into something unholy, a shaft of calamity connected to everything. Deep beneath the seething, the Campeche seabed recalls Pangea. The creek by the road runs wild after a hundred-year rain. Heavy deadfalls, uh, uh, heaves deadfalls at the silt-washed banks. Roots exposed by the torrent hold on, weave air and roiling water into a fabric of space-time. The bottomlands roused slough centuries of topsoil to the stream, to the river, to the sea. The flooding recedes, leaving eddied pooled. A great blue heron takes flight. The blaze is extinguished, but fire persists. The ocean floor strapped down by pipeline, 
bides time in epics. Soil washed in from broad rivers settles in silty layers. Upstream, another hundred-year rain undercuts the sycamore. The old one loses its grip in the saturated soil, topples like Jack's giant to the road, blacktop crushed to rubble. I stand back between tree and home, silent by the great collapse. The uprooted mother tree leaves an open wound. The forest weeps. Yeah, really interesting poem. Thanks for sharing that, Richard. That was uh, silent by the great collapse. And that was such crazy video uh, of that burning, you know, whatever, natural gas leaking inferno in the ocean thing. I, I, that's hard to believe that's even possible. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's uh, I, one of the poems we talked about earlier. I think, you know, there were billions of living things in that column of fire, mm -hmm. right? We don't think about, you know, that we think about the fire, but the planktonic life there was all extinguished. Yeah. Well, at least yeah. just to relieve, you know, it can't be on fire underwater. So <laughs> there needs the oxygen, right. you know? So at least the methane was just passing by most of them. <laughs> yeah. Just the, the surface though. Um, yikes. Yep. Okay. So what was the, the prompt poem? Uh, what is the mole? What, what to the mole is a mountain? Uh, so, that's self-explanatory also. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it was, it was a, using that as the idiom. I, I did not do it as cleverly as all the poets who have gone before me stringing together these very smart plays on words. So, um, should I go ahead? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. What to the mole is a mountain. If I could make a mountain from a molehill, I would climb it in day and sleep at night under the stars in the clear, chill air away from summer's heat. Find a place that I alone will know. I will note the ready signs, slanting sun touching the old oak's mossy trunk, a toad's guttural croak, the spring-fed brook whose gurgle rhymes with words like granite and schist but I'd miss the warm places below, would wander back down and feel the rocky path give way to foothill and field, turn back and see the mountain had receded into myth. The mole and I might agree that I am better suited to this place where his hill and I are both rooted. Excellent. I love that, Richard. And, and since you didn't go, you know, string them together, you could write like a real poem that didn't turn all goofy and <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, I had admired, uh, um, don't tell Megan, because normally <laughs> I admire, but yours just was really flowed beautifully. Oh, you like that? Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. It was, I, it, I don't know. I thought, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. It, thanks, it, it, it captured a thing. Thanks. Well, I'm glad. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Tim. Yep. Have take care. Have a good night. Bye. Okay, yeah, that was Richard Westheimer with two poems. Uh, and let's go now to uh, the 803 number, who um, is a first-time caller. I'm not sure who this is. We'll find out in a second. Hey, uh, you're live on the air. Just mute your, your background. Uh, mute your stream so it's, it doesn't show up on the phone. Please turn you off. Excellent. That sounds Hello? much better. Yeah, so who am I talking to? Ted Guevara. Who is Bernard it? Yeah. Ah, great. Well, thanks so much for From calling Dr. in. Lemon. Yeah, thank thanks. you. Yeah, let me see. Uh, so what was your poem that you wanted to share? The, the one that I sent 
uh, two days ago. Cat man, the pigeons. Excellent. I think it'll be it'll be safer if you read it. Uh, um, kind of, uh, you know, I can speak well. Okay, yeah, you know? yeah, no problem at all. I'd be happy to read it for you. Is there anything you want to say about it before I do? Um, after to okay. Olivia Rodrigo. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's a pop singer. Mm-hmm. Who's she has a number one song right now, and she's very emotional. And that uh, that driver. Uh, reference in the poem, mm-hmm. it's kind of like her song, which is uh, kind of hit now, you know. Yeah, I actually, you know, my daughter loves loves her, and uh, so I listen to okay. way too much in the car, and then I watched the um, Sour Prom, which was an amazing, you know, half an hour con. And I just watched it on my own. There's this weird way right, that I like want right. to understand my daughter <laughs> before it's too late or something. So I find I find okay. that fascinating. Um, so yeah, Super. she's really good. Yeah, yeah. Amazing found out today they take the Filipino. Mm-hmm. It's like me. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks. I'll, I'll read this. Uh, I'll read this, uh, and, and you can hear it off the air. Thanks for calling in and sharing this, Ted. Yes, sir. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Yeah, so that was uh, Ted Guevara, and uh, here is his poem, Cat Among Pigeons. This was for the prompt last week. What was the prompt last week? Does anybody remember? Um, ah, I have My memory's terrible, but uh, I'm looking forward to reading this poem, though. Cat Among Pigeons to Olivio, Olivia Rodrigo, and here this is uh, Cat Among the Pigeons. Funny, if you speak softly, they still hear you purr. The landing of your paws falls to deaf ears, but still your good is skinned. There is no flight in you, fight in you, flight in you, sorry. No descent to feasibility or the blue yonder. You doubt if they know the risk you've taken of your lives. You grind an olive branch between your teeth, see if it's minty. They can't possibly misread that. It's on their statues, on their feathers, on the tip of their tongues. You couldn't beg more. You see an empty street, a half-filled front seat where the lovers used to be. But they notice they're the ones gone. Left is the carpet, the faux leather, the dash. And on the once clear windshield, past, past the well, the well enough, the well enough alone. Excellent poem, Cat Among the Pigeons, to Olivia Rodrigo by, uh, by uh, Ted Guevara. Thanks so much for sharing that, Ted. And the, uh, I just... I don't know. For some reason, I got caught up in all the drama, too. Like, she, they were on, like, some show, and then she dated this guy, and then he broke up with her, and then the, and then she wrote this album, and then the person that he was dating now wrote a song called Skin. I don't know that lady's name, though. But anyway, it, uh, somehow I got, as a, as a 41-year-old man, I got all into this drama, partly because I was wondering if it's uh, PR or if it's real. I, I, I was trying to decide that, too. Anyway, let's... um call up next let's try another first time caller david reagan this is a prop poem hey Hey. yeah hey you're live on the air thanks so much for joining us Uh, if you want to join by video too, push the little camera icon there you come yeah hello it's perfect yeah so uh, where are you calling from first of all 
I'm calling from Melbourne in Australia. Ah, excellent. I'm so glad you could join us from Australia. So what time is it there? It's about 11 o'clock in the morning. Ah, good time. So we're, we're, 14, we're 14 hours ahead of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, good time. In, in the middle of winter, Tim. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So all the heat <laughs> references don't really apply right now. But they will. No, they, they definitely will. They will for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and the, I don't know if you remember the prompt is idiom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was last week's prompt, though, um, I think. Oh, maybe maybe uh, Ted's was for this week's prompt. It was. Okay, so he said last week, but he meant the one we gave last week. I was trying to think of like the uh, two weeks ago, I guess you would say. But anyway, yeah, idiom is the prompt. And and what did you want to – or do you have anything you want to say about this before you read it? Well, look, it's just a bit of a fun little poem. Um, it was prompted when I walked past a very manicured lawn and – there was a sign on it saying, please don't walk on the grass. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just a fun little poem, and um, I hope you don't mind a little swear word in there. No, we don't mind at all. you on there. <laughs> yeah, we're fine. This is a... <laughs> so it's not, like, as you said, the Indian poems, I think, uh, they sort of inspire you to write, like, a fun poem and yeah. something that's not... Serious. They do, yeah. It's a nice break from, from more serious content, I think. So let's hear it. I'll put it up for everybody at home. And you have to read your own copy, of course. Sure. Yeah, go ahead whenever you're ready. So please don't walk on the grass. Rule number one, walk on grass whenever possible. Roll on it, roll it. Smoke when off it. Kiss on, lie on, fuck there. Hide when long. Long for it. Jump on, run on, dance. Take off shoes and feel it, touch it, envy it. But face it, the grass is never greener on the other side. Oh, that was great. Yeah, great response to uh, to those signs. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Yeah, Thanks my pleasure. I'm glad we could reach uh, Australia. It's just amazing how clear the connection is and it just technology. Man, wow. It's the first time I've ever listened to you live. I've listened to the podcast, mm -hmm. but it's really nice to be online. Excellent. Well, I'm so okay. glad you could join us. Hope you can again soon. Okay. Yep. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Bye. Yeah, and that was um, uh, David Regan with, uh, with his prompt poem, Please Don't Walk on the Grass. Um, let's see. Let's see. So, so um, unfortunately, uh, Greg Bell, who ca tried to call in yesterday, has a family Zoom gathering right now, so we may not be able to get away until 7. Well, you know what? Maybe we'll hang on till 7 and see if we can get him live. If, uh, if we can get Greg Bell live, we'll get him live. And if not, uh, I will read this poem uh, for him, Star Spangled. So we'll wait until 7 and see if he appears. Um, who else should we do? In the meantime, let's call up Angela Gartner. Hi, Tim. Hey, Angela. How are you doing tonight? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, did you want to come in on video or no? No. Okay. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> <laughs> no, no problem. So so what do you have for us tonight? Well, I wanted to read um, the Poets Respond poem, which I will probably be reading those more mm -hmm. as I'm involved in a poetry postcard fest. So oh. all my prompt time is going to be spending uh, trying to write all my little postcards. Very good. Um, is, that, uh, is that Paul Nelson's uh, postcard yeah. project or something <laughs> different? Yeah. Oh, very cool. Um, we should say, what do you know the website? It's, it's postcards or popo dot. What yeah, it? it's, oh gosh. I yeah. just 
it's it's really fun. It's this is my first year, and I actually learned about it from you guys. Um, it's a popo dot cards. Ah, that's right, popo dot cards. So p o p o dot cards, and then and then you can join. But I think it's probably too late to join now, right? Yeah, I think he's still taking registrations until oh. the eighteenth. Ah, perfect. That's a perfect plug. Let me put this on uh, screen here. Uh, let me show everybody at home. Uh, this is the, if you go to popo.cards, this is what comes up. And this is Paul Nelson's Postcard Poetry Project. Of course, we did a whole issue for Postcard Poetry based on this project and other things people sent in. Um, and, the, uh, and, and so what you do is that you sign up um, and you get a mailing list. Uh, I think the, how much does it cost to do? Is it like, it's a few dollars, right? Yeah, it's, it's not that much to do, yeah. Yeah, it's but... a few dollars. And you get a mailing list of people to send postcards to. And um, and then you in return get po- gets postcards. You get, you send thirty postcards out, right? And then you get thirty postcards one a day for the month of the project. So you get poems and you make poems, and it's really fun. It's a great project. Yeah, I'm really excited. I have a whole theme I'm doing, and it's the first time that. And I got all my postcards, and you know, and I've been. I actually have. It's like thirty one. So thirty one days in August, I'm supposed to send out. Um, a postcard a day. I'm going to start a little early so they can get them like a little earlier. Uh-huh. So awesome. Well, and so the one you wanted to do was uh, Bird's Eye, right? Bird's Eye View? Yeah. And did you get the revised? I version? did. Yeah. That's what I have okay. up right now. So go ahead whenever you're ready with it, but introduce it first. Say what you want to say about it. Well, there was, um, you know, I live Midwest North, uh, you know, and there was this issue with the songbirds where they were having this disease. Um, it's like a songbird disease where they were getting ill and dying. And it's it's funny because I, you know, like in May, I, I kept noticing birds like dead, like as we were going on our daily walks. And I was confused then. I'm like, hey, and like some birds I noticed were like hopping around and they seemed like sick, like they mm. weren't flying. And I saw that actually um, the article was from Science Daily I gave you, but I actually initially saw it in New York Times. I'm like, oh, that's what happened to the songbirds. Hmm. And there's a hawk like that always is around our neighborhood. And I just was thinking about his view of it's just coincident. We have like this songbird disease that's mysterious that they don't know what it is. They don't know what's causing it. And then like a year ago, um, not a year ago, but more than a year ago, even in December of 2019, we were all hearing about this mysterious disease. So mm-hmm. just kind of, you know, mm-hmm. I was just thinking of the both at the same, you know, yeah. these kind of curious about that. Do they, do they find a disease or do they just, it's complete mystery? It's a complete mystery. They yeah. thought it was a couple mm-hmm. things, but they, they thought it was those things uh, I can't pronounce them, but you know, those things that came up from the ground and <laughs> they thought it was oh, maybe them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This, but well, one thing I'm know, wondering, there's a, I, I just read, I didn't know this. There's a big um, problem with thiamine deficiency, which is vitamin B1. That's like killing tons of fish. And that's how the fish behave when they have that. Um, and it, so it's like going up through the food chain for some mysterious reason. We don't understand like something's blocking the production of vitamin B1 in like the LG. And so the, the fish don't get it, and then they get weak and die, and then the birds that eat the fish don't get it. And um, I don't know. It's it's a big mystery, but but it's the same kind of lethargy, and, and I don't know. It's it's strange. Yeah, I you know, and it's sad. Mm-hmm. Like all these, you know, we we 
we always think about our human diseases, but like animals have these little outbreaks too. And yeah, you know, mm-hmm. so. well, let's hear this poem whenever you're ready. I have it up for you. Okay. The hawk was flying high above the trees when he saw the songbird fall from a branch. A discarded tissue was still in its beak. White crust was on the bird's swollen eye and it chirped in an anomalous tone. Unsteady in its steps, the bird was reluctant to move in the grass. The hawk circled in the sky. He ready to pounce on the prey. A sight caught his attention. The red flashes on top of the box hurrying down a stone path. It picked up another human who was gasping for air. He thought of the songbird helpless on the ground and others like it he has killed. They were all frail and blind. The hawk speedily dives to where the songbird died, but he was no longer hungry. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that, Angela. It's, it's really great and perfect timing to let everybody know about the Postcard Poetry Project, too. Yeah, thanks, Tim. I'm, I'm excited. I, I'm, I'm a little nervous. Hopefully, I'll, I, I, was, I already ripped a bunch of postcards because I'm just trying to fit everything on. The, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not a good, you know, I'm, my handwriting, it, it take, you know, you got to think about your handwriting when you do these things, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or find an old typewriter. Like, I have an old typewriter, which is what, if I were doing it, that's what I would do, because my handwriting, I couldn't even read it myself, let alone some poor person I was mailing it to. <laughs> Oh, yeah, um, only, yeah, that would, that's a good idea. <laughs> All right. Well, well thanks. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, the poems you share from this as we go through the uh, the open lines coming up. Well, good. I, I am like, sort of excited too, but I hope you have a great night. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. You too. Bye. Thanks. Bye. It was Angela Gartner with uh, Bird's Eye View of Illness. And let me show you just once again, this is the, the po- popo.cards and it's Paul E. Nelson. Um, and um, what's her name? We're publishing uh, his partner in this project, too, coming up. I'm drawing a blank, though. Um, but uh, it's Postcard Poetry Fest, and you can see the t- timer, the countdown there. You have five days, five hours, four minutes, and 20, no, 51 seconds um, on Paul's countdown here, and that would mean five days. One, two, three, four. I guess Saturday's the deadline, um, Saturday night. So uh, join this um, Postcard poetry. Let me click on this and see, see how much it actually costs, so I can tell you. It's a fundraiser too for Splab, which is the Sa- Seattle Poetics Lab, uh, which is his nonprofit. It's a fundraiser, so for fifteen dollars you get this list and participate in this uh, project. So help support Splab, which does a whole bunch of poetry events and things around Seattle and and other you know special things like that, uh, festivals and and whatnot. Um, check out our interview in rattle number sixty four. No. 66 68 yeah 68 with uh paul e nelson talking all about splab and all about the popo fest and then samples of these postcard poems which are really fun to do um anyway that is that let's see we got up to 657 i want to make sure let's see make sure we get to two Okay, so the only person we have left is Greg Bell, I think. If you'd like to call in, let me put the numbers on screen. Again, uh, we, you know, we have time. Um, 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. Just let it ring a few times, then hang up. I will call you back when the time is right. Or send me a chat message over Skype to Rattle Poetry, all one word, and just say hi, and then I will call you back when the time is right. Let me make sure I didn't miss anybody. Um, and I think we might have... Let's see. I thought I saw. 
let's do uh, um, Vicky Miko's poem here. Idiom poem number 101. And of course, Vicky includes art like she always does. So uh, let's look at this and uh, we'll share idiom poem number 101 from Vicky Miko. On the edge, and let me describe this this image too that comes with it. It's a haiga. So that's the, the poem and the, or the photo and the haiku go together. It's a picture of a uh, two ducks in a pond, a male and a female. The, the, the male is like sitting on a rock and the female is kind of swimming away. And um, the haiku is, on the edge, they talk in riddles about making love. On the edge, they talk in riddles about making love. Great, great com- you know, combination of that photo and, uh, and the haiku. Vicky, thanks for sharing that. And then let me read the whole thing. Idiom, poem number 101. On the edge to feel tense, close to doing something imminent. Talk in riddles, to speak obscurely or with hints. Making love a euphemism that speaks for itself. And then we have the haiku once again, uh, which I just love. On the edge, they talk in riddles about making love. Um, Joey Stahl is calling right now. I'm going to just, oop, I almost got it. I'm going to call Joy Stahl back right now. I guess I did miss it. I'm sorry, Joy, on my call list. Better look at it more closely after we talk to Joy. Hello. Hey, Joy. Sorry I, I missed you and you had to call in again. I don't know how I didn't see it, uh, but uh, so glad you could join us. Yeah. So oh, you and have it's a, so a very short, short too. A haiku, yeah. Do you want to say anything about, about this before you read it? Well, I, I was just getting so frustrated in not being able to string idioms together the way that you did. Uh, I was trying and, and not doing a very good job of it. I teach idiom, and so I think some of that was getting in the way. Oh, yeah, that would do it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and so I just put all my frustration into a haiku. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's hear it. I'll put it up. <laughs> all right. Idiom. How to say what you mean. As clear as mud. Excellent. Why don't you say it again since it's a haiku? Idiom. How to say what you mean. As clear as mud. Oh, I love that. That was great. Thanks so much for sharing that, Joy. Thank you. Yeah, have a good night. You too. Okay, let me see. So if if I didn't see Joy, I'm wondering if that thing is happening again. Where I have... um. Uh, where, where some things are not showing up calls because they did they they added like a category here and um Dave Williams contacts okay so I I think that I think that's it okay let me see if uh let me see well I still like to wait a minute for Greg Bell see if we can get Greg Bell live um I'll read uh, in the meantime let's read this is Julian Matthews poem he's not here um, right now, but let's read uh, Julian Matthews' poem, Clouds, right here. Clouds. A lone white cloud floats by my meadow. If a gray cloud suggests it's about to rain, what does a white cloud contain? Has it no purpose but to drift by poets' windows, inspiring us throughout the ages to capture its form and in innuendo, perhaps in a rhyme with proud, bowed, or cowed? Or for a songwriter to see it from both sides now? Does it only have two sides then? One silver lined and another, presumably darkly maligned? 
Or perhaps this particular white cloud is cloud number nine. I should be extremely happy for its emergence, even over the moon, like a leaping Apollo astronaut or a cow about to dance. But why nine? And whatever happened to the eight clouds before it? Did they drift sadly by while I wasn't looking? Or even counting? Are all white clouds sequentially numbered then? Like levels in a game being stuck in, at cloud one would be so lame? Five or six would be a shame, seven or eight perhaps fleeting fame. And if angels exist, do they appear on cloud ten? Then, when my number is up? For that matter, I never, I never ever notice clouds in my coffee either. They're all foamy latte art now, little hearts and stars, vain swans and smiley bears, unlike my own coffee and my usually hurried morning, random swirls and a hasty teaspoon twirl. Art takes work. You can't fake it with a twerk. Maybe I don't see them in my coffee because I am often told I always have my head in the clouds. But what that would make me a giant, wouldn't it? A clumsy blind giant towering over a wasteland, perhaps standing on the shoulders of other giants, blinded by their own white clouds, but sniffing me out suspiciously from below, for isn't being under a cloud likely to cause that kind of labeling? And so my white cloud fades out of the window frame, as clouds are wont to do, and I'm left with nothing lyrical nor poetic for having experienced its passing, just the cliché of a bright blue sky, and weary, weathered words conspiring once again, rain on my parade. But that's another poem. <laughs> that was fun. Thanks for sharing that. That was Cloud, Clouds by Julian Matthews. And now I am just dying to know, where is that cloud nine come from um so the expression is often said to have been popularized by johnny the Do johnny dollar radio show of the 1950s in which every time the hero was knocked unconscious he was transported to cloud nine it's an american english idiom meaning a state of perfect happiness a feeling of well-being so it comes from a from the johnny dollar radio show interesting i never knew that now I, you learn something every day uh, at least i do because there's a lot of stuff I don't know. And uh, that was my thing for the day. So thanks for sharing that poem and, and teach me something too, Julian. Um, okay. Let me see if... Um, let me do someone else too. Yeah, so uh, so Annie Inn was as a, tran a translation, but she's not here yet. So uh, today, she was going to be here Sunday and... Um, since we had to postpone the show, she couldn't. So hopefully we'll save that for later. She has a translation. Um, she wanted to read in both Chinese and English, which I, I couldn't read the Chinese, of course. So um, let's save that. And um, let's go backwards. Um, let's do... So we'll call in. I'm trying to find some... A bunch of people sent me poems and asked me to read them. Um, here's a poem this is uh, John Probst and John sent this poem just to share called Evolution it's a random pull up from uh, from this email chain I have um, if, if anybody would like to just email a poem if you're watching later and can't make it live just email us at openmic at rattle.com and at some point I'll flip through um, and I can read it for you uh, which is fine too and this is one of those. So evolution, and this is John Probst. 
and that's John P.R. I mean, let, let me put his name in the document too, so you see his name. He didn't include any uh, links or websites or anything, but if you want, include a link or a website and introduce the poem in, in the uh, in the description and things like that, then I can pass that along as well. But here is uh, John Probst's poem, Evolution. Evolution. Throughout the years, there is still no conclusion to the perennial question of man's evolution. Some say it is God's protrusion into natural selection of matter and fusion. But what I believe, and this is only a personal conclusion, is that this unanswered question will always be an intrusion into man's thinking without an equitable, egalitarian, or lasting solution. And that is uh, our <laughs> that is John Propp's poem, Evolution. Great rhymes there, John. And uh, so I want to let John know that we read his poem on the show tonight. And I'm still trying to, I just wanted to, because Greg Bell said he would try to get here after 7. And uh, I'll just call him up and see if he happens to answer. But if not, I'm just going to read his poem and move on. Because it is a is a 4th of July poem, so we should do it this week. Okay, he's not answering. So, sorry, Greg, we missed you, but we'll get you next time you share a poem. It's sorry for the, you know, it's another casualty of the uh, the delayed show. He was ready to go on Sunday, and he called in on Sunday, but uh, couldn't make it today because he had another commitment. So this is Star Spangled, a prompt poem for this 4th of July. So a very appropriate poem for right now. And again, this is Greg Bell. He's a, a Southern California-based poet. He's come to our literary festival and things like that. Star Spangled. After the worst, we hope, of COVID, after the worst of the bumbling id of America, the comb-over conman, after we began to learn again how completely reliant we are on one another, our unmasked interdependence, we face again the day of boom and bombast, our own star-spangled Independence Day. I see it far and wide out the window, hear it on all sides, loud and bold and brash, critters cower before it, photons coruscate the night, and far too many people with PTSD flash, sizzle, pop, with blasting as of armaments that rattle my ears, the gunpowder sky, the rocket's red glare. Urgent wail of sirens goads me now to ask in all this celebration, all the blast and beauty, all the picnics, beer and barbecue, all the posturing braggadocio of exceptionalism, if as once before there are fifty-six men, or women too, now to agree, to agree on anything, much less pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to our interdependence. Thanks so much for that, Greg. Well, great sounds in that poem, too. Perfect poem for uh, last week's Independence Day celebrations. Hope everybody had a good one here in the U.S. Um, now, um, I think I'm just going to go to our uh, Saiku for this week. Unless, um, yeah, so, okay, let's do our Saiku for this week then. That'll close out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the Saiku still. It's just at the end of the show as a way to close out and um, remind everybody that you can write a poem about anything, even a little science article. And so my Saiku this week uh, was about, I have to like remember what it was about, as <laughs> I did this Saturday. Uh, my Saiku this week, oh yeah, it was about this story. Um, so this was research out of Yale. I'll put this on screen. Um, more filling tastes great, how flies and maybe people choose their food. And what they did was they tested um, how flies made the choice of whether to eat, uh, of what food to eat. So they're always looking for calories. 
And so because they're looking for calories, they're looking for sweet things. Um, so what these researchers did was um, lace a very sweet, calorie-rich food with quinine, which is very bitter. And so, um, um, so it wouldn't be taste pleasant, but it would be full of calories. And then they, they gave the fly the choice of choosing this bitter, calorie-rich food versus um, food that wasn't as calorie-rich but tasted better. And uh, then they looked at their brains while they were making the decision and it's compared how um, the decision was made. And what they found was that um, it depended on how hungry the flies were. So if the flies were hungry enough, they fought through the bitter quinine and ate the calorie-rich food anyway. And if they were sated, they uh, ate, the, ate the tasty stuff. And so what that means is that even within the, the tiny little fly brain, let alone our brain, there are multiple pathways that govern our choices on what we're attracted to as far as food which, uh, to, in my opinion, has a lot of implications for artificial sweeteners. And, um, you know, because artificial sweeteners, there's study after study that shows that they don't help you lose weight at all. All you do is end up eating more food later. And um, that's because it's not satisfying that underlying drive for calories that uh, you think you are as you taste it. So um, so the, your gut can sort of override your dopamine feedback loop in your brain seeking sweet things. And that was the uh, article that I read, which was interesting this week. And the Saiku was here. Fruit flies descending on fallen fruit. Fruit flies descending on fallen fruit. That was your Saiku for the day. And that is going to be the show for today. Now, next week's prompt, I'll put that up on screen really quick. Next week's prompt is going to be write a poem that explores a common argument you have. Oops, let me. Uh, with yourself. Or someone else. Write a poem that describes a common argument you have with yourself or someone else. That is your challenge for the week. And um, let me remind you before we go that this week's guest, of course, Brother Yao, in his newest book was um, One Shoe Marching Towards Heaven. I'll put that up on the screen here. So here's Brother Yao's books. I forgot to do this in the break before the break. So here we go. One Shoe Marching Toward Heaven. Towards Heaven is uh, Brother Yao's newest book. That is available from... Um, Africa World Press, if you can read that, it's africaworldpressbooks.com. So you can find that and find Brother Yao's book or the link in the show notes, of course. And his book before that was Inheritance, uh, the book more about his family. Um, and that is um, Inheritance by Brother Yao. Uh, that is from uh, One Fish Studio, I believe. And um, is that right? No, it's by Willow Books. I'm sorry. Willow books right there. So you can find Inheritance there. And those are the two books from Brother Yao. Just a great poet, a uh, great person. Love talking to him. He is uh, really likes talking to um, some kind of sage. And it was really wonderful talking to Brother Yao this week. So that was this week's guest. And next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Ace Bajas. Now, Ace, um, he was in our lawyer poets issue way back on Rattle Number... Uh, or not <laughs> Rattle Number. Yeah, Rattle Number 23, I think, was Lawyer Poets. And, um, and after that, he ended up being a prisoner poet as well. He went to jail for, I think, five years and um, writes his last couple books are about that experience. Uh, the newest one is Escape Envy. Um, he's also an Appalachian poet, so he's in the Appalachian poet issue that is uh, on your bookstores and bookstands and whatever right now. The current summer issue of Rattle features Appalachian poets, and that's one Ace Bodges. He's from West Virginia. Um, and Escape Envy is his newest book. We'll talk to him, and he should be fascinating to talk to. And that'll be Rattlecast number 102 with a prompt that explores a common argument you have with yourself or someone else. 
next, or this Sunday coming up, July 18th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you there. Hope you have a great rest of your week and uh, stay cool and stay warm and stay dry, everybody. Talk to you soon. Good night.